Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. You are going to be the one who pays for those tariffs Donald Trump slapped on China. Don't take it from me. Take that from Donald Trump's own economic advisor who said American consumers are going to pay the price. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Look who's back. That's me, back from about 10 days overseas, a great vacation in Tuscany and a little time in Rome, uh, and it's good to be back with you. Thanks for all of you for hanging in there while I was gone, and thanks especially to uh, our good team of um, guest hosts, Igor Volsky and Jason Dick and even Peter Ogburn and Kylie Joy Gray, right? Get that la- yes, name right? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. If I miss anybody? I think that's about it. There's it a takes lineup. a village, Bill. <laughs> it takes a village, right. Uh, several people I ran into over there said, well, who's doing the show while you're away? And I said, you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> no, I didn't say I just said it's a great team that we've got in place. And uh, thank you all. And it's good to see you all. Whether you're joining us online, whether you're joining us on the radio or on television, it's good to be back with you. Uh, with lots and lots to talk about. Yep, the news never stops. I tried to uh, get a little bit of distance, but still with phones, with newspapers that you see every once in a while, with television that you see every once in a while, uh, it's hard to escape what was going on back home. And uh, I really come back uh, in the middle of a constitutional crisis, if not an all-out war between the executive branch and the person of Donald Trump And anybody who believes, not just Democrats, Republicans, anybody who believes in the Constitution of the United States and the separation of powers. So much to talk about. We want to hear from you, your comments on the news of the day. Uh, Come back, say hello, tell me what you think about what's going on. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, and we will jump right in. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. 
Well, the NBA playoffs have been very, very exciting, Bill. In fact, yesterday there were two game sevens, one game to decide who goes to the Western Conference Finals and another game to decide who goes to the Eastern Conference Finals. I actually ended up seeing the last Whoa. part of one game. Uh, the, the the later game with the I, I game winner, the Kawhi Leonard. Well, let, 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 no, me, okay, let me set go this ahead. up. Yeah. So first of all, the Trailblazers were facing the Nuggets. Winner moves on, loser goes home. The Trailblazers won that game. That's the one I saw. Yeah. That was a squeaker right to it the very end. It was a end. squeaker. Well, talk about a squeaker. The The second game was even more so. Tie game, four seconds left. The Philadelphia 76ers, 90. The Toronto Raptors, 90. Here is Kawhi Leonard with the ball. Defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? Oh, man. Toronto Raptors won. And you hear in the beginning of that clip, wow. a little doink. Yeah. There's like three doinks. He shoots the ball. It hits the rim. It bounces around. No. And then goes in after oh the buzzer. Oh, my God. So it, after, it's a game winner. After the buzzer, it's but It's a still. game winner. A game winner for Kawhi Leonard, former San Antonio Spur. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Uh, delivers the win for the <laughs> Toronto Raptors. Uh, they will move on to face the Milwaukee Bucks. The Trailblazers will move on to face the Golden State Warriors. Warriors. Yes, indeed. So there's your final four. There's your final four. Hey, we talk all the time about people who try and ride in the HOV lane with a dummy in the passenger side, right, so that they can... Yeah, but they used to do that. I don't know if they do it much anymore. They do, they do still do it. In fact, the Minnesota Department of Transportation posted a, a photo. It wasn't someone who used a dummy, <laughs> but they had a fake human skeleton oh my dressed God. up in a hoodie and had the hoodie over their head. They pulled the uh, driver over and took a picture of the skeleton in the passenger side uh, and tweeted it out and said, no, this this does not count as a second person. Dead or alive, right? <laughs> doesn't count. It doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. This is the Bill Press Show. Are we heading toward a constitutional crisis? Hell no. We are already in one. Buongiorno. Hey, what do you say, everybody? It's good to be back here. The Bill Press Show. Uh, <clears throat> Buongiorno tells you where I was for the last 10 days. Hope you had a uh, great time while I was gone. I certainly had a great time <laughs> without you all. Uh, but it's fun to be home. Good to be home and uh, to catch up with all the news of the day with you, good to be back with you. And a great big thank you to uh, Igor Volsky and Peter Ugburn and Jason Dick and Kelly uh, Joy Gray for uh, for uh, filling in while I was gone and keeping uh, the whole pace of the Bill Press show going. We are back at it today on this Monday, May 13. Yes, in the middle of what uh, everybody, uh, except for the President of the United States, the accidental President of the United States, who uh, everybody else calls it a constitutional crisis, this all-out war between Donald Trump and the uh, legislative branch of Congress, a legislative branch of the United States. Uh, he has just totally trashed the separation of powers, wants to rule as a king, believes he is above the law, that he has power, unlimited powers as president of the United States, 
And for a man who once accused Barack Obama of abusing his executive powers, no president has gone so far and in such dangerous territory as has Donald Trump. So far, it's only been two and a half years, not even. At any rate, good to see you on the radio, on television, and online, and good to be back with you here on The Bill Press Show. Thanks so much for joining us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, of course. Don't forget that podcast is up there every day. need you to sign up for the podcast and get those numbers up, and you can hear from us uh, whenever we have anything new to report. Great to see you on television on Free Speech TV, America's only full-time 24-7 progressive TV channel, and on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks. And how about it? Chicago. You're looking good in Chicago on WCPT. Uh, Just a word. I mean, you know, I hate it when people come back from trips and the first thing, oh, come on over, we'll show you our slides. I I don't know that people do that as much as they used to. But we have social media now. It's, exactly. it's like a virtual sort of slideshow. Virtual yeah. slide. So instead, you have to sit around and look at the picture on the on the cell phone, right? Right. Uh, not going to give you the slideshow, but just, just indulge me for a couple of minutes. A couple of reflections. So uh, Carol and I were off for 10 days, a couple of days in Rome, and then we went up to Tuscany uh, with a group of friends there at a beautiful place. And uh, just, uh, just a couple of things that occurred to me. Number one, one day we went off to, <clears throat> and we did this several times, but one particular day um, w- we visited a particularly beautiful Tuscan village called Pienza, a little hilltop village. We went to in, in, the, in the cathedral there. It was built by Pius, Pope Pius II. Like, give me a break here, but it's around 1524. And here we are in this cathedral, in this, and we toured the palace of the Pope right next door. Pope was born in that little village. And I was thinking, you know, here we are in this cathedral. And we did the same thing in Orvieto. We did the same thing in Siena, looking at the cathedrals there. They were built like fifth in the 16th century. It just, it just really struck me that we are building nothing today that will last that long. Think about it. Here we are today. And we went into the... the um, Pantheon in Rome as well. Um, these structures were were so beautifully crafted and built to last. Nothing today. The Empire State Building is not going to last that long. I mean, five, what are we now, in the 21st century, okay? So 600, 700 years later, the Empire State Building is not going to be there. The World Trade Center is not going to be there. Uh, Trump Tower is not going to be there. I mean, with all of our modern technology and all of our new building materials and all the new skills and everything, um, you know, we're building stuff that comes and gone overnight, just about. Uh, and also, we have this culture that oh, tear it down tear and build it, down it back up. And build it back up. But second for reflection, it's not only the the buildings themselves that last forever. In Tuscany... It's the countryside that lasts forever because they have a rule there that you cannot build any new structure in Tuscany on any new site. You have to build on a footprint, an existing footprint, whether it's a home or a, just a building or a village. That's it, and that's the way it has been since then. So back to Pienza, we're, stand, we're, we're in the garden of the Papal Palace 
looking out over this beautiful valley, Val, Valdostia, uh, and um, the, I had the little mobile guide with me, reads a, an excerpt from the journal of the Pope who lived there, ex- describing the view that he saw from his garden. And you look at it today, and it's the exact same view that he saw back in 1524 or something. So if you see these old Tuscan villages, you don't have to worry about when you come back next year, there's going to be condos marching down the hill like you see everywhere in the United States and totally destroying the the view or the atmosphere or, or the historical nature of the place. Ain't going to happen. Can't do that everywhere. There's something to be said for it, though, about destroying the heritage that we have. Uh, if you care about it, uh, you keep it, and the Italians certainly know how to do that. Just struck me looking at that, and I could have st- been standing here in 1511 and described the very s- same thing that I saw. Heritage That's, is is something. the best word, right? And yeah, it's it so is. undervalued uh, in a lot of places, and a lot of Americans sort of cling on to that for whatever reason you look at the heritage of our country and it's but that's that's not, it's not great no but that's it's why i like visiting your hometown of charleston for example sure you know the historic part of charleston you're really yeah i mean they're very strict there oh yeah savannah you know the same way so there are a few places where that's that that uh respect for our heritage uh does exist but too many places it's just Put it up, tear it down, rebuild. Put it up, tear it down, rebuild. Expand, expand, expand. Grow, grow, grow. Gobble up the orchards and the vineyards and everything and just plant more condos. And, and also, look, some heritages are – there's some uh, there's an ugly past, right? And it's important to preserve that in the sense that we should know and we should remember <laughs> what that is. Yeah, right. And the third reflection is, uh, I got to tell you, man, worldwide, no escaping it, whatever it is. All the Italians that I talked to, what they wanted to know was, what the hell yeah. are you doing? <laughs> okay, I actually wanted to ask you this question. Oh, yeah, I mean, what are, you know, try to explain Donald Trump to us. And <laughs> yeah. Can't, right? <laughs> did yeah. you just spend your entire trip apologizing? Yeah, to we people? did. I'm sorry, we got this goofball for president. We've effed it up, right? Uh, and the best I could say, we could all say, was just, well, give us another couple of years and we'll get back on track. <clears throat> I hope they believe us, and I hope we're right. But, I mean, they're just appalled uh, for, for, for them. They realize this is an aberration, at least they hope it's an aberration. But for the time being, they do believe that America has gone off the rails. And we have. Uh, and they just don't have the respect for the United States that they once did. Uh, President Obama, who is extremely popular there. Uh, and they have, by the way, an Italian prime minister now who is a clone of Donald Trump, and they're very, very worried about him as well. So uh, just a couple of reflections uh, coming back, and it's good to be back. And, you know, uh, I didn't think I'd come back to find the United States at war, but we are. I mean, this there is don't, – don't underestimate it. There's an all-out war now underway, and it's not just between Donald Trump and the um, and the Democrats in Congress. It's really a war between Donald Trump and the Constitution of the United States. And it's a war, I believe, that conservatives ought to be on the front lines fighting against because this is a man who is trashing everything that this country stands for and everything, all the principles that this country is built on. I mean, starting with the separation of powers. Washington Post reporting over the weekend that now, there, so there are some 20 
different investigations or probes or uh, oversight uh, efforts on the part of the Congress. Now, look, we know that for two years, Donald Trump has um, had it easy, right? Because these Republican cowards in charge of the House and the Senate didn't care what he did. They would let him get away with anything, never raised a peep. Certainly Paul Ryan never did, neither did Mitch McConnell. Uh, and so even then, Donald Trump ignored the Congress and acted unilaterally without the Congress. Remember? The Muslim ban. Remember? Building the wall. Remember? Repealing Obamacare. He signed more executive orders. So I, uh, as of, um, got the number here, as of the end of um, April th this year, uh, Donald Trump had signed 102 executive orders. In his entire presidency, Barack Obama signed two, in eight years, Barack Obama signed 275, meaning uh, fewer, right, 275 in eight years. Uh, President Obama signed roughly 35 a year. Donald Trump has already signed 102 executive orders. Again, these are executive actions taken without waiting to hear from Congress, without consulting Congress, unilaterally, imperial presidency. Um, with Barack Obama, it's the lowest number of executive orders of any president since Grover Cleveland. And if you recall, when he was running for office, he, he Trump, accused President Obama of abusing his powers as president. And he had now. So even before, my point is, even before, everybody says this crisis was triggered by Democrats getting control of the House and starting these investigations. The point I'm making is, no, that's not true. Don't believe that. It started the minute Donald Trump walked into the office that he felt, because he, he was president, that he was, again, above the law, had unlimited powers, could do whatever he wanted, did not need Congress, did not need to wait for them, did not the, did, did their need their approval. He would just go and do whatever he wanted to do. And, again, for two years, the leadership of both houses of Congress let him get away with it, just looked the other way never said boo. Now, of course, that has escalated now uh, that Democrats do have control of the House, and Democrats are saying, wait a minute, we did not abdicate our responsibilities under the Constitution. Um, we've got a job to do, and we're going to do it. And part of that job is oversight of the executive branch. We are an equal branch of government. Uh, try to tell that to Donald Trump. Back to the war and the numbers I started to give, that there are some 20 investigations underway by various department, various committees uh, looking at various departments and agencies, including the White House, not just Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is obstructing, has given orders not to cooperate and to obstruct with every single one of those 20 uh, investigations, meaning no documents presented, no reports uh, prepared, no witnesses allowed to testify. He has given the orders. Do not cooperate in any way with the Congress, again, under the Constitution, an equal branch of government. Seventy-nine subpoenas have been issued by the Democrats, and the Trump administration is fighting every single one of them.
which means this will probably go to the courts, which means it could probably last beyond 2020, but which means that everything that we have built up over the last 250 years or whatever is at stake because this really does get to the fundamental question are, is that does the Constitution mean anything? Do we have a president with limited powers or do we have a dictator? Do we have a king? And the other question, so clearly for Donald Trump's purpose, he's the king and he's acting like it. Then the question is, is there anybody, anybody in the United States Congress, particularly any Republican in the United States Senate who is willing to stand up and say, as Republicans once did under Richard Nixon, by the way, we're going to be talking to Ray Locker, who's just written a great book about the Nixon presidency and Al, Al, Al Hager, and this is when Arthur Schlesinger came up with the term the imperial presidency, and that's when Republicans, what brought Nixon down, were leaders of his own party who were willing to stand up and say he may be a Republican, but he, as president, is trans crossing the line, abusing his power, and uh, abusing the executive powers, uh, and violating the Constitution, and he must go. Is there any single Republican senator who's willing to do that? And if not, why not? And surf, certainly so far, there is none. In terms of a, a constitutional crisis, um, here is uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler. This is last week saying, <laughs> don't wait for it. We're here. We've talked for a long time about approaching a constitutional crisis. We are now in it. And Kamala Harris yesterday uh, made uh, the same point, agreeing with Chairman Nadler. We probably are. I mean, listen, a constitutional crisis is defined is generally when the, the, the system that we set up with the checks and balances, when each of the independent co-equal branches of government fails to perform its duties. And I think that we are seeing a breakdown of responsibilities. And so this, this is an issue. This really, really gets beyond partisanship. Uh, it really is an issue where the Congress has got to stand up uh, for again, its constitutional duties and responsibilities and standing. Uh, otherwise, we are going to see, uh, in a, if we don't already see, but an imperial, we see a president right now who's acting as if it's an imperial presidency. If Congress doesn't fight this right now every step of the way, uh, this in, the entire structure of our government is going to change and Congress will be, you know, like some of the European parliaments, just totally meaningless where you have, like in Turkey, the president, of Erdogan of Turkey, can do anything he wants. That's the way Donald Trump wants it. Same thing in Hungary. And the president of Hungary is going to be at the White House today. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, Chairman Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee yesterday, uh, pointed, made the point that what Donald Trump is doing is far, far, far beyond what any other president has done with the use of executive orders. This, is, this goes far beyond that. Yes, it made specific claims of privilege, but here... The Trump administration has decided to say a blanket no, no to any kind of oversight whatsoever, no witnesses, no documents, no nothing. No, nothing, no witnesses, that's it. It's total, total, all-out war. And by the way, you know, this, it, when this got, this will go to the courts. Well, one, one more thing from Adam Schiff, um, just to get it out there, that um, as he says, we got two years to fix this. Uh, we can't go, we can't, we can't go any longer than that. I don't think this country could uh, survive another four years of a president like this. 
could not survive another just, four years. That, that's the other yeah. thing. I mean, just think about when we talk about 2020 Whoa. and we yeah. look at the primary it, uh, and, and all the different possible presidents. I mean, we have to face the fact that this next president could, in fact, be a second term of Donald Trump. Yeah. And, and I the think, president after that could be the third term of Donald Trump or the right. fourth term of Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. if, if we don't actually get this under control. <laughs> fix, it, fix it right now. Yeah, so I, I do believe uh, this. Uh, so, you know, it's gotten so bad that now some Democrats are thinking about there is something called we're going to hear more and more about this. And we'll talk about it more maybe with Ray Locker uh, in the next hour. Um, there's something called inherent contempt. So a uh, Congress does have certain powers. They can issue if people don't come in to testify. They can issue subpoenas. Uh, they can ask the Justice Department to hold them in contempt, they can hold them, order them in contempt of Congress. Ask the Justice Department to force the people to come and testify. Uh, you can't count on this Justice Department to do that for for this Congress. Uh, there's another phrase that again we're hearing more and more called inherent contempt. So Congress could declare somebody in inherent contempt of Congress. And fine them. And Supreme Court has upheld this, by the way, in, uh, already, that Congress does have this power. Not this Supreme Court, but Supreme Courts have. That Congress could fine people. And Adam Schiff yesterday made the point, if you find somebody, let's say, $25,000 a day until they show up, that could have an impact on somebody like a Bill Barr or a Robert Mueller, even, or a Don McGahn. Uh, or they could even order... Um, the Capitol Police to go find them and arrest them. Now, they've never done that, at least not in modern times. I don't think they've ever done it, maybe. But they do have those inherent powers that are, again, have already been ratified by the Supreme Court. Some Democrats are even saying, we got to go there. So it's either going to be go there or it's going to go directly to the courts. Uh, so I believe this is going to be the ultimate test for John Roberts, if this goes to the Supreme Court, you know, the, the, where does he stand? Right? Yeah, no, that that that's a very good point. I mean, one of the reasons that the Trump people, Trump and his people, I should say, uh, continue to lie is that they face zero consequences for their lies. Right? Like Bill Barr stood in front of the American people and he lied uh, before you know the, the the press conference he had two hours before the Mueller report came out. But what was interesting inside the Mueller report is you see folks like Don McGahn spilling their guts because they're mm -hmm. so they're smart enough to know that if you lie in those circumstances, your ass will get thrown in jail. Yeah, right. And you can't come up before as the a house, couple of people have learned. As a couple of people have learned, Michael yes. Cohen, are you listening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you can't show up in front of a committee in the House or the Senate and tell a lie. Because you will go to jail. Yeah. And right. that's what these hearings are all about. If they actually have to start paying a price for their loyalty to Donald Trump, they'll change loyalties pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, that um, that's the latest on the Constitution front. Again, we'll talk uh, more about it. Your comments, welcome, of course, uh, as how serious you think this is. Send us your comments on Twitter, at uh, BPShow. Um, Rudy Giuliani had a little change of heart. <laughs> God, over the weekend, uh, you I know you talked about this last week. Rudy, Rudy announced. So here's here. Here's the same administration. 
Donald Trump and Rudy and everybody else has said, Mitch McConnell gave his big speech last week, even in Italy. I just hear part of that. Um, oh, the Mueller report is done. It's out. It's done. It clears the president. Put this behind us. Put it to bed. Bury it once and for all. We never want to talk about it again. End of investigation. At the same time, Donald Trump tells Rudy Giuliani he wants him to go to Ukraine and ask the Ukrainian government to open an investigation into, I don't know, even know all the details, some alleged business deal that Joe Biden's son had years ago with some Ukrainian politician. Boom. But, I mean, the, the, just the total contradiction, the total hypocrisy of, oh, we can't have any more investigations. We have to put all this behind us. At the same time, they're going to the Ukraine. Why is Paul Manafort in jail? Because he was double dealing with the with Ukraine politicians while he was chairman of Trump's campaign. And Trump sends Rudy Giuliani to Ukraine to, to try to convince them to start up their own investigation over there. As if, by the way, we give a rat's ass what anybody in Ukraine thinks about anything that happened over here, right? Uh, at any rate, just so you know, Rudy Giuliani, uh, <clears throat> over the weekend he finally admitted, no, this wasn't a very good idea. So he's canceled you his think? trip. Yeah, you think. <laughs> it's nice to know that even some things, right, are too much for yeah, the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. It's even that even they could sometimes go too far. Doesn't happen very rarely that they admit that they went too far, but uh, this time they did. Uh, and one other case, a little embarrassing for the president of the weekend. Um, <clears throat> he, of course, last week I was gone. Slap some new tariffs on China. We had tariffs of 10% on $200 billion of Chinese of goods that China sells to the United States. Uh, Donald Trump more than doubled it. Increase, by the way, Congress didn't do this. There's another case where unilaterally, executive power, he just did it. He could not, you know why? He could not get Congress to vote for these. Congress would never vote for those tariffs. It, it's against everything the Republican Party has ever stood for in terms of free trade. So Donald Trump went from 10, put them from 10% up to 25%, saying, of course, this is going to be great for America, and China's going to pay, and nobody else, and it won't impact American taxpayers at all, other than that we'll get a lot more money uh, be going into the Treasury because people have to pay these tariffs. Hmm. His economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who, by the way, before he went to work for Donald Trump, was Mr. Anti-Tariff. The whole time he was on C CNBC, the whole time he was on Fox Business, he was anti Mr. Anti-Tariff. Now, of course, he has to try to defend Donald Trump, which even Larry Kudlow can't do. So he's on with the great Chris Wallace yesterday morning on Fox News Sunday. Listen to this exchange. It starts with a quote from Donald Trump, then Chris Wallace, and then Larry Kudlow has to admit that Chris Wallace is right, Donald Trump is wrong. Our country can take in $120 billion a year in tariffs, paid for mostly by China, by the way, not by us. A lot of people try and steer it in a different direction. It's really paid, ultimately, it's paid for by, largely by China. But Larry, that isn't but true. Larry. It's not China that pays 
tariffs. It's the American importers, the American companies that pay what in effect is a tax increase and oftentimes passes it on to U.S. consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, fair enough. In fact, mm -hmm. both sides will pay. Both sides will pay in these things. And of course, it depends. Well, if it's a tariff on goods coming into the country, the Chinese aren't paying. Uh, no, but the Chinese will suffer GDP losses and so forth um, with respect to a diminishing export market and goods that they may need for their own. Uh, I understand that, but the president says China doesn't. That China it pays the tariffs. They may suffer consequences, but it's U.S. Businesses and U.S. consumers who pay, correct? Uh, yes, to some extent. I, mean, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I don't disagree with that. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, in other words, friends, you and I are going to get stuck paying the price for Donald Trump's tariffs. So much to talk about, so little time. It didn't even get to 2020 yet. We'll get to that and more about the tariffs with uh, Laura Baron Lopez from Politico, national political reporter. Uh, joins us next here on the Bill Press Show this Monday, May 13. Again, good to be back. Give us a break. We'll be right back here with the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, May 13, uh, the Bill Press Show with me, Bill Press, back with all of you. Good to see you today. Thanks for joining us here as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Our studio here on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today in part thanks to the great men and women of the American Federation of Government Employees, keeping our federal agencies running and serving Americans every day, day in and day out, from coast to coast, under the leadership of President J. David Cox. They are men and women who are proud to get up and work for America every day, as you will see if you check out their website at afge.org. Uh, and proud to work for the American people, presenting the news at Politico, our good friend, national political reporter, Laura Baron-Lopez, here in studio with us, fresh from uh, early morning appearance on CNN. You're on a roll this morning, Laura. It's good to see you. Yeah, I'm drinking all the coffee. Yeah, good. You'll need lots of it, huh? Yeah. All right. Uh, good to see you. Before we move on, a mm -hmm. quick look at the last uh, half hour or so, Peter. Yeah, lots of comments where we are on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Lots of people welcoming you back, Bill. After uh, Thank you. After good to be off, back. Thank you. you thank you. Uh, okay, so John Davis talks about the tariffs. He says, in states like Minnesota, those tariffs will cause us to lose billions and billions of dollars. Uh, geez, that's scary. But yeah, I think that's I think that's about right. Uh, somebody else points out uh, on the it is right on the yeah, for... on the Mueller bar. How do you get people to testify? Uh, somebody else says uh, conservatives just don't care if they trash the Constitution. They are at war with us. Anyone who disagrees with them, or they are at war with anyone who disagrees with them. Uh, KG says Trump is counting on the Supreme Court to. Bend the knee when the time comes. Again, a little Game of Thrones reference, which Donald Trump has started using. Yeah. In his Back on the testimony, I was thinking, sure. what if what if at the time uh, Barack Obama says, no, Hillary can't, Clinton can't testify. We will not let her testify. Yeah. She's a former secretary They'd of state. They'd lose their minds. Oh, my God. You talk about impeachment hearings. It would have begun so fast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you talked about your recent trip to Italy and the heritage and the culture that they are working so hard to preserve there in Tuscany. Uh, somebody says, uh, American culture is cheap and disposable, just like Trump. Ooh. Yikes. 
Yikes. If you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show. I always enjoy uh, hearing from people who are meaner than I am. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Or say it meaner. Anyhow. Yeah, yeah, all right. yeah. All right. Thank you all. Thank you all for the comments. We keep them going. So, uh, Laura, on this question of uh, of tariffs, uh, earlier we, we played that classic now exchange between Chris Wallace and Kudlow, and Kudlow where he <laughs> admitted that the president is wrong. Americans, in fact, will pay for the taxes. Mm-hmm. Somebody else yesterday did on this week, um, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky uh, was talking about one particular company in Kentucky that he's talked to. Uh, of, uh, he mentioned one. There, there have been others, too. He said, generally making the point uh, that this is not good for American businesses. Here he is. I know of a big prominent company in Kentucky that told me that the tax cut significantly helped them, but that the tariffs are almost equal in punishing them. So uh, obviously this was a, uh, a bourbon company, because what else does Kentucky make? <laughs> what right? else is big in Kentucky? <laughs> exactly, right. But he's making a point. So yeah, on the one hand, Donald Trump helps us mm-hmm. with these tax cuts. On the other hand, he's slapping these tariffs, which means we have to pay more for anything we import from China. Right, this is what... How's it play out? Well, I think that um, the way it plays out is that we could eventually see uh, whether it's these uh, Trump supporters turning on him in in key states. So uh, there's studies that have shown that the 2018 tariffs uh, are dramatically impacting more Republican-leaning counties as opposed to uh, Democratic counties. That, that Particularly the, agriculture. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so that states like Iowa and Ohio and and um and those are where Trump supporters are. Uh, you know, he won uh, Iowa last cycle, and so there is a risk. And Republicans are warning him, although they do it privately. They don't publicly, um, other than Rand Paul very lightly, you know, saying that, hey, this is also hurting us. But you don't see any of them very forcefully um, trying to shut the president down or come out aggressively against him because this is his party now. Um, anyone who were to do that would run the risk of being primaried. Right. But so, but it, it, so the ten percent tariffs mm-hmm. were unpopular enough, mm-hmm. That's and there right. were these complaints that you're talking about were voiced after the ten percent tariffs were put in place. Well, now he's more than doubled the tariffs on the same products, the same two hundred billion dollars in goods, mm-hmm. from ten percent to twenty five percent. Right. So one would imagine that the pushback will be even stronger. Right. I I expect, and I think everyone else does, that that the pushback is going to escalate as people begin to feel more of a squeeze. I mean, already, uh, you know, we've had over the weekend and today, like Goldman Sachs and other companies put out aggressive statements saying that this isn't good for the American economy. Um, You know, on one hand, you have Trump, who should be uh, able to stay on message and talk about the great GDP and a booming economy, and then he turns around and slaps even more aggressive tariffs on China, and and that doesn't help him in that message heading into 2020. And he very much views this through the lens of his reelection. Right. Um, so, would do you think that were if Donald Trump tried to get these tariffs through Congress? <laughs> well, the House is in Democratic hands, right? So, would even the Senate. Yeah. No, because right, uh, uh, Republicans, I doubt a majority of the... Republicans oppose yeah, tariffs right, like that's, this. That's if anything, it's like, you know, there's Schumer, who is actually in support of stuff like this, Senate Minority Leader Schumer, the Democrat. But no, uh, the Republicans in the Senate are not on board with this. And a number of ones in the House aren't either. But again, they don't 
forcefully push back on Trump because they very much are, you know, consider themselves a part of his party now that he owns it. Right. Um, the question uh, we talked earlier about um, um, what some people are calling a constitutional crisis. Donald mm-hmm. Trump famously tweeted yesterday, there's no constitutional right. crisis, right? They're just they're just making this up. Um, uh, others and some Republicans are even saying at least if it's not a constitutional crisis, it is a classic clash between the executive and the legislative branch. Mm-hmm. Again, how does this play out? And then ending up in the courts, do you think? Or at some point does Donald Trump say, okay, we'll be willing to cooperate within <laughs> some bounds? No, I think if we know anything about Donald Trump is that he's not going to cooperate. I mean, every time, whether it's on these issues of the investigations or even just uh, attempting to make deals with Congress, even with with Republicans themselves, I mean, they couldn't come to a, an agreement on immigration. They couldn't even repeal the Affordable Care Act or come to an agreement on that. Um So with these investigations and with Democrats now controlling the House, uh, this is everyone expects it to end up in courts. Even the House Democrats do. They see it heading there before they even maybe take other steps that they could possibly take. Uh So uh, are we likely to hear either Don McGahn or hear from I know you talked about this earlier on CNN. Don McGahn in front of uh, um, uh, the House, one of the committees there, judiciary Uh probably, or or Robert Mueller himself? Well, so the date that Democrats hoped they would hear from again is May 21st. But um from from McGahn. McGahn. Yeah, okay. they had they have that date, you know, floating around, but they everything that I've heard from House Democrats is that that's not set in stone, that they still don't have an agreement with him again that he's going to come forward. If he doesn't, if he defies them, then there's a very good chance that they have a contempt vote uh, uh against McGahn. Mueller was supposed, well, not supposed to actually. They had no hard. It wasn't right. set in stone yet, but it was supposed to be May fifteenth. So it was this, this week, week, right? Yeah, yeah. they had. And now Nadler has said that. Yeah, Nadler and other House happen. Democrats, when they left last week, um, when they left for the weekend, they were saying that uh, negotiations were still ongoing, but no one expected him to come on the May fifteenth marker that they had set. They're still hopeful that he will, um, but. The ongoing clash between Barr and Mueller and the way everything uh, has been going between Barr, A.G. Barr, and House Democrats is what they think is holding uh, holding Mueller uh, back. Again, I was out last week, but my, I believe I saw that Donald Trump has said he will leave it up to Bill Barr to decide whether or not mm-hmm. Mueller should testify, correct? Right. And Barr has at least publicly said that he's On a okay couple of with occasions, it. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. But because of the contempt vote against Barr, that appears to have complicated things with when it comes to negotiations. And when it comes to McGahn, has Donald Trump asserted executive privilege over McGahn's testimony? No, I don't think he has. He exerted executive privilege over the full report, right, the unredacted report. Um, what steps Trump may take to try to prevent McGahn, it could be that. I'm, I'm not sure what else they would end up doing, but... Um, it, it's striking that McGahn has not been willing to say that uh, we saw recently over the last few days that Trump wanted McGahn to publicly say that he didn't obstruct justice. And McGahn has refused the White House's pleas for him to do that mm-hmm. uh, recently after the uh, almost the entire report was released. Uh, McGahn said he wouldn't do that. Right. Um, so <clears throat> it, it, clearly and we've seen uh, some Democrats are very frustrated by mm-hmm. um, uh, the lack of cooperation. 
uh, and are suggesting that this means we just have to go um, toward uh, finding people or having people arrested for Mm -hmm. not testifying Mm -hmm. or maybe even just right into impeachment hearings. Uh, right. And and, 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 and and Speaker Pelosi uh, has pointed out a couple of times that she believes that's exactly what Donald Trump's plan is. Right. Trying to goad Democrats into getting so pissed off that they start the impeachment hearings, which he believes, again, mm-hmm. everything's 2020 related mm-hmm. for him. Every, everything, right? He believes will help him in 2020. Yeah, I've covered Pelosi for a number of years now. And from what I gather in this situation is that as long as she can avoid heading towards impeachment, she's going to avoid avoid starting impeachment proceedings. She, They just got back the majority, and she is very much of the view that if they launch official impeachment proceedings right now, that uh, that would jeopardize their majority, that she would be putting those vulnerable Democrats in even greater danger. Now, if as they continue with the hearings... And if they are able to get people like Mueller to testify in public hearings and as they continue with the investigations and as more facts come to light, if she sees public sentiment move, she's all about public sentiment. If she sees that move, then we could maybe see her say, "Okay, now is the time now that we have the facts lined up and now that it appears that the public is behind us. Let's let's proceed with this. I've also heard from a number of Democrats. Uh, Go mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I do believe. That she's right in that this is Donald Trump's wish list. I mean, he, yeah. he's doing this mm. deliberately for one of two reasons. Mm-hmm. Either one play in his favor. One is to run out the clock by tying these all these questions up about separation of powers and, mm-hmm. and, and the responsibility of the president to at least cooperate with the Congress or whatever, tied up in the courts until after 2020. Mm-hmm. Or goad the Democrats into starting impeachment hearings and then politically dividing the country, solidifying his base, and he sees that, you know, then he'll just be able to coast through. And I I think, to the extent that he may be right, that it would not only... I'm not sure the American people are ready for it. It would just be not not just his base that would be turned off, I think. Majority of the American people are not there yet. And that's the point. No, they that Speaker aren't. Pelosi. That's the point that Pelosi is making. I mean, the polling backs her up on that. A, a majority of people do not want, even though they may, Trump's approval ratings are very low, they still don't want to see Congress go down that path. Not yet, anyways. And when, you know, I've been on the trail a bit so far this cycle, whether it's with 2020 presidential candidates or uh-huh. also in competitive House districts, and no one is talking about this. They are still concerned about health care. They're, they aren't asking, you know, the candidates about this issue very much unless they're they lean more towards the really well-informed, like engaged voter who is a bit of an activist. But the ones that are everyday voters who are just trying to figure out which candidate they're behind, especially when it comes to the 2020 presidential, they're concerned about health care, they're pres- concerned about prescription drug prices, uh, you know, about wages being stagnant. Those are the things that they're asking about, that they're worried about. They aren't um, paying as close attention to the day-to-day of the Mueller, Russia, House Democrats investigations. All right. So uh, Laura Barone-Lopez is with us from Politico, politico.com. Um, let's go out on the trail with you. Um, <laughs> uh, it's been a lot of fun. I know you were following Elizabeth Warren around for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, she was out in uh, Cincinnati, uh, in sort of Trump territory, right? right? Uh, and um, she's, she's electric in front of a crowd. Here's, here's a couple of clips here. 
I'm tired of freeloading billionaires. She's got to wait with words. Doesn't take her many words to make her point. Uh, and she uh, expressed, which she's always been, uh, strong support for um, working men and women and members mm-hmm. of labor unions. Unions built America's middle class. Unions will rebuild America's middle class. So I want to ask you how she's doing. And I, I saw an incredible statistic over the weekend that so after every one of her town halls, and she's had over 70 town halls so far, she does what they call the selfie line. Yes, she does. Right? Uh-huh. So, so the rope line where you go shaking hands, you know, she's, she's just selfies. She does, according to the story I saw somewhere yesterday, <laughs> 450 selfies an hour. Wow. I mean, I was I watched Whoa. her do one of those lines uh, after yeah. an event in South Carolina. There were about 450 to 500 people there. And she stayed there until, you know, I don't know if every single one that was there wanted was stood in right. line to take a selfie. But she wait, she stood there and did took a selfie with everyone that was in the line and waited until the line was. So done. is this the new metric for candidates you know, before <laughs> we measure how much money they raised in 24 mm-hmm. hours? Right now, it's how many selfies they right. take an hour. I mean, it's pretty impressive, but <laughs> it is. I guess I my seen point him. is how she do on the campaign trail. Well, so the the crowds react to her. She's very good on the stump, um, and it's obvious because of the way the voters respond to what she's saying, and they she gets them excited, and and they like her message. Um, Warren is playing this long game with her with her strategy. She hasn't really changed it from the beginning. From the beginning, it has been setting the pace on policy proposals and providing in detail um, everything that she would do in a given area and how she would pay for it. More than anybody else. More than anyone else. No one else has done this to the degree that she has. And so she's hopeful that as people continue to pay attention and maybe drill down more on the issues, that that is how she will win them over. I wrote a story about how she could potentially have a breakout with black voters because of those policy issues, because she has... Uh, has policies that address the racial wealth gap, um, housing inequality. And when she's on the stump, these voters feel like she's not pandering to them because she brings the specifics. And uh, I don't know whether it was your story or someone's story I read, mm-hmm. uh, read over the weekend that also um, she did pretty well out in Trump territory. Right, she did. Uh, that was my colleague, Alex Thompson. He uh-huh. he covered her uh, stop in West Virginia um, which was at the end of last week, I think. And she went there because she was unveiling her opioid policy proposal solution. And she went right into the you know heart of Trump territory. I'm not sure anyone thinks West Virginia would flip in 2020, but that is another big part of her strategy is going to places that wouldn't necessarily end up having an impact on the electoral college for her if she were the nominee. You know, mm-hmm. she's gone to Mississippi and Alabama early and that attracted a lot of uh, attention from voters because they felt as though they were being heard and that she was paying attention to everyone. Um, one candidate who seems a little frustrated that he, his message is not resonating uh, better than it is is Cory Booker, mm-hmm. sat down with Jonathan Carl on, um, this week yesterday on, uh, on ABC, uh, and he said, you know, criticizing him for being nice is not really fair. Here he is. Is your kind of like nice guy approach really in tune with where the base of the party is? Well, I think you mistake this understanding that to be strong, you don't have to be mean. To be (laughs) tough, you don't have to be cruel. Right. Uh, And he says, you know, I'm not going to 
go out and attack my fellow candidates. I can't campaign in a divisive way. I always say you can't campaign wrong and think you're going to govern right. I'm governing to unite this country again, to reignite senses of civic grace. Right. So we're going to love everybody. Uh, but then Jonathan Carl asks him about Elizabeth Warren's oh, right. uh, proposal <laughs> to break up Facebook. Uh-huh. Elizabeth Warren's already out there saying break up Facebook, break up uh, Google, but I, 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 I don't think break that, up Amazon. Right, but I don't think that a president uh, should be running around pointing at companies and saying breaking them up without any kind of process here. It's not me and my own personal opinion about going after folks. That sounds more like a Donald Trump thing to say, like, I'm going to break up you guys. No. I guess he can be mean when he has to, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but anyhow. He can. I mean, and, and Booker you have had to a... Show, you have to show differences with your candidate. You do, and he kind of fell into the criticism of her. But, I mean, Booker also did have some valid points on his his own um, view of how he would handle Facebook and companies like Google. And, and, uh, and he did say that they do need to be regulated more. Uh, but he wouldn't go so so far as saying uh, we need to break them up. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there is a difference. There are the candidates uh, who are not going on the offensive as much. Uh, we saw right off the bat after Biden jumped in, Warren and Bernie both uh, attacked Biden mm-hmm. relatively quickly. And Sanders's campaign even went around to press and said this is going to be a top strategy of ours is to... Right. paint as many contrasts as we possibly can between ourselves and Biden. Now, one other frustration that uh, Cory Booker feels, uh, I'm sure Eric Garcetti feels, uh, and some other big city mayors <laughs> feel, is that it's a little city mayor who is getting all the attention uh, to the point that uh, Donald Trump even had to come up with a nickname uh, for oh. <laughs> Mayor Pete, uh, calling him Alfred E. Newman. Do you know who Alfred E. Newman is? Yes, the Mad, uh, you, Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine. I don't know how many people <laughs> no, do. No, I know. I'm young. I, I... <laughs> I think Donald Trump is showing his age. Uh, Pete Buttigieg responded to this uh, at, at a, I think it was out in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Or Donald Trump today in an interview um, compared you to the Mad Magazine mascot said Alfred E. Newman can never be president. What's your response to him? So I'll be honest, I had to Google that. <laughs> I guess it's a generational thing. I didn't get the reference. Uh, I, it's kind of funny, I guess, but uh, he's also the president of the United States, and I'm surprised he's not spending more time trying to uh, salvage this China deal. Okay. That was I'll show my age. <laughs> I know who Alfred E. Newman is, and I remember a time when he was the craze, right? It was, it was Alfred E. Newman right, popping up all the time in Mad Magazine. But that's that's been a long time ago. That has been. And it's not like I actually really know much about Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> I just knew Alfred E. Newman Mad Magazine. So that funny is a funny little gen- guy with big ears right, pop right. up everywhere. Yeah, I've definitely seen that face, but I've never uh, really... No, I don't know much about it. So just like Buttigieg, I mean, he is a millennial. But um, I mean, that's something that has come up a lot. I think Buttigieg has been effective in um, painting this picture of himself as someone who has a lot more experience than I think voters realize he does. So by saying, oh, I'm the only candidate with executive experience um, can, in a way, maybe mislead some of the voters. So just about a minute left. Are you surprised at how well, to this point, Joe Biden seems to be doing. I am and I'm not. I I did probably expect a little bit more of a a downturn in the first month, given the fact that there was going to be so much more scrutiny of him. Yeah. That being said, though, it is so far out. And I think this electability question um, that appears to be upset, you know, voters are obsessed with it 
is partially why he's doing so well. Also, name recognition. I mean, this far out, like Clinton was still way ahead in 2008, right? I mean, no one saw Obama coming for a long time. So I think there still is clearly enough time for some other candidate. And to now emerge. the buzz is Biden Harris, Joe right. Biden, Kamala Harris. <laughs> The members of the Black Caucus are talking about this. Is this is the mm-hmm. answer? Well, the Black Caucus really loves Biden. And I think part of that yeah. is generational too. Mm-hmm. I think there's very much a generational divide within the Democratic Party right now, and that's why uh, a lot of those uh, caucus members are behind him. They worked with him for a long time, and they know him. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times this morning saying, "Oh my God, it's a miracle. We've gone three weeks now, and Joe Biden hasn't had any really major screw up, <laughs> right? Or hasn't said anything really." embarrassing so that's the new metric too laura thanks so much for coming in thank you the double header this morning laura (laughs) brown lopez from politico Politico politico.com in the next hour ray locker joins us um with his new book about uh, al haig uh, haig's coup uh and then we'll be joined by adam smith as well to talk about the latest lawsuits against donald trump Stay tuned. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, you know those new uh, tariffs against China? Guess who's going to pay for them? You are. You and I are. So says Donald Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Monday, May 13, uh, we're back together again. Good to be back with you after a little uh, 10-day jaunt over to Italy, up into Rome, and up into Tuscany. Um, but, of course, um, as much as good a time as I had, it's still glad to be back with you. Uh, to pick up the pace here and catch up where we left off uh, with a lot of the same old issues that haven't gone away, this is the Bill Press Show. And we are here to bring you up to date on the news of the day. And to get your comments about what's going on, you know how to do so. Send us your comments on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. And we join you, as always, leaping out from Washington, D.C., and our stu- studio in Capitol Hill, uh, to join to get there right alongside of you online, on the radio, and on television, coast to coast. Uh, we do so this hour with the help of our good friend, uh, Ray Locker, whose earlier book about Nixon's gamble has now been uh, trumped, if we can, by his newest book just out this week called Haig's Coup, How Richard Nixon's Closest Aide, Alexander Haig, Forced Him From Office. Ray, congratulations. Thank you. All right. You got, this is the man, right, who did it. That's the man uh, who did it. Uh, the parallels between the Nixon presidency and the Trump presidency and this whole, what people are calling now a constitutional crisis are real, aren't they? They're real. They're endless, really. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, it shows, I think, in this book that what President Trump says about a coup against him or internal threats isn't really that crazy. Because mm-hmm. Al Haig was the White House chief of staff, and he did as much as anybody to remove his president from office. Right. All right. Can't wait to get into that with you uh, and with you as well. Uh, so Ray Locker is here with us for the full hour. Adam Smith from End Citizens United will be joining us as well uh, with the latest on the update on some of the uh, court cases uh, against uh, Donald Trump that are still moving on. We'll jump right into all of it, but first, Peter this here is for, the uh, full court updates. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, yes. Have you heard about Marty? Do you know who Marty is? Oh. Marty is the grocery store robot drone that a lot of different grocery stores are experimenting with. It's a drone that basically does the job of people who go around the grocery store taking inventory. It is a... Wait, it's a drone that flies? It doesn't fly. It doesn't fly, but it's an unmanned... uh, uh, So a robot. Robot, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, But it, it, it... Yeah. It has wheels, basically. That's how it gets around. And it's replacing jobs... Uh, from people who are, you know, taking inventory. Like members of the UFCW, That's our right. good they friends. They don't stock shelves, the yeah. uh, Marty, the drone, but uh, does take inventory. And also, if it, it has been trained to interact with customers. So if customers see this drone wandering around the store, you could walk up to it, ask it a question, and it will tell no. you. Like if you're looking for cereal, it'll tell you where to find it. I haven't encountered one of these yet, but apparently some grocery stores... I do, I'll kick it. (laughs) Okay, so... I don't like this. The Denver Post has a whole big story about this, and that is actually a problem. Oh. People are... Because it's kind of tall. It looks Uh to be about six feet tall, and it wanders through the store. Some people are tipping him over. Him. It. (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't go under him. They're tipping it over uh, because they find it annoying, they don't like it, whatever it is. But, uh, but by the way, just be on the lookout. I, I think each one should have its own name. I mean, name, oh, not don't just name one, them all, yeah, Marty. Yeah, well, that's that's a, that's a good point, actually. But then, you know, it becomes a little more personalized. Does it belong to the union? I'm gonna guess no. <laughs> I'm gonna guess, <laughs> guess that too. No, but if you encounter a Marty out in the wild for crying out loud, don't tip it over. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Buongiorno. Yeah, hey, guess who's back? Hello, everybody. It's the Bill Press Show with Bill Press. And a great big thank you to uh, all of you for hanging in there while I was uh, gone for the last 10 days. And also a big thank you to uh, Igor Volsky and Peter Ogburn and uh, Jason Dick and uh, Kylie Joy Gray for filling in while I was gone to keep, uh, keep the things going here. But we're back and in the middle of a whole big lot of news that we've got to cover with you, um, particularly with what more and more people are calling a constitutional crisis, a real test of the separation of powers uh, between Donald Trump, uh, the imperial president, uh, considers himself that, and members of Congress, even some Republicans quietly saying uh, he may be going over the line publicly, not so much. 
uh, are they willing to say that? Uh, with us here is a friend of Bill, author of the uh, new book just out this week, very important, Hague's Coup. Love that title, by the Thank way. Thank you. Get you. Hague's Coup, How Richard Nixon's Closest Aid Forced Him from office, uh, as uh, Jesse Jackson used to say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and Nixon Trump was rightfully paranoid mm-hmm. about uh, his his chief of staff, yes, uh, Alexander Haig. Uh, great, it's good to see you. Great to be Thank here. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to I want to begin our conversation about some of the parallels between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump by uh, just a little reflection on. What happened while I was gone, um, I learned when I came back, that Donald Trump has now decided that the 4th of July is his anniversary, his celebration, his party, and he's changing the 4th of July celebration, moving it from the U.S. Capitol, South Lawn, Mm -hmm. not the South Lawn, the West Lawn, the Capitol, where it's always been, down to the Lincoln Memorial, and the, the 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 highlight of the now Fourth of July ceremony is not going to be the fireworks. It's going to be a speech given by Donald Trump. Here is David Gergen on CNN yesterday. David Gergen, White House for like four different presidents, I Including think. Including right? Richard Nixon. In, really? That's where he got his start. Started with mm-hmm. Nixon. Last one I think he worked for was Barack Obama, mm-hmm. I believe. Anyhow, Republicans and Democrats, here's right. David Gergen's comment on Fourth of July. It's wildly inappropriate for the president to step in. Uh, this has been it, this has been an event for all the people. He's tried to govern by talking to and persuading only a third of the people. Uh, and and let's get to the bottom line. This is not his Fourth of July. It's <laughs> right. our Fourth of July. It belongs to all Americans. And to have the president sort of take charge and then plan this address uh, is just it just goes against the grain. Uh, it is pretty, pretty much a sign of uh, what Donald Trump thinks about the presidency, isn't it? Yes, indeed. I, I mean, mean not even Richard Nixon did something like That's that. That's what I was going to yeah. ask you. Even Nixon wouldn't go that far, right? Would he? No, I mean Nixon pretty much had a fairly accurate sense of how people felt about him. He knew that not everybody loved him. Um, he had very strong supporters. He had people who hated him, just like this president. But I think he knew better about what how to play up the ceremonial aspects of the office. Some of the bounds, huh? Yeah. Right. The norms that all previous presidents have followed other than this one. But it was under, wasn't it under the Nixon presidency that Arthur Schlesinger first used the phrase imperial presidency? Yes, indeed. I mean, he uh, consolidated power in ways that other presidents had not. Um, that was pretty much the premise of my first book, Nixon's Gamble, is that mm-hmm. he funneled all of the policy-making decisions through the National Security Council and Henry Kissinger. And that created a bunch of rivalries inside the government that Nixon then had to deal with. And the payoff is in this book where all those things have come to roost. He brings in Al Haig, a military man, as his chief of staff in a period of crisis. And instead of helping out Nixon, Haig basically pulled the rug out from under him. Um, How was he able to do so? Well, remember, at this time, Nixon was seriously beleaguered. He was drinking more than he usually did. He felt like he was going to resign. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know everything that had happened. Have the impeachment hearings started? No, they Uh had not. They started really after what's called the Saturday Night Massacre in October of 1973, 
when he wanted to fire the Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox and the Attorney General Elliot Richardson and his deputy William Ruckelshaus refused and quit. They got down to the number three guy in justice, Robert Bork, the Solicitor General who fired Cox. Mm -hmm. That's what triggered everything. They will look like, hey, obstruction of justice, just like firing James Comey looked like obstruction of justice for Trump. Right. But you're saying that Al, uh, that, uh, Al Haig's movement against Nixon pre- uh, preceded. In, in a Nixon. number of ways. Yeah. I mean, he basically sandbagged Nixon into allowing Alexander Butterfield, the wh- White House aide who knew about the White House taping system, to let, letting him testify. He told Nixon, Watergate's not really a big deal. The people are tired of it. These Senate hearings are going to go nowhere. He let uh, encourage Nixon to let Vernon Walters, the deputy CIA director, testify before another committee. And Walters said they tried to get the CIA to block the FBI investigation into Watergate. And that was an obstruction of justice that finally did in Nixon when that was discovered on tape. So Haig allowed all these things to happen that steadily weakened Nixon's position. So Donald Trump um, may, in terms of self-protection, right, Mm -hmm. uh, may have been right in not um, tolerating a strong chief of staff. Right. Like a John Kelly. Yeah. We thought was going to be. Brains previous, I'm not sure we ever thought was going to be, but certainly he's got somebody today that is not going to stand. He's going to do whatever he wants. Let Trump right. do whatever he wants. Right. I don't think there's been a chief of staff who had as much influence as Al Haig did over Nixon and the White House during his 15 months in office. Right. And again, in terms of self-preservation, uh, perhaps just looking at it from that that mm-hmm. that narrow point of view, uh, Donald Trump is maybe right in not wanting any of his former White House aides, including Robert Mueller, to testify. Right. I mean... Because he sees the danger. Right. That was one of Nixon's problems. Haig basically talked him into not using executive privilege to block testimony. Um, Haig let the previous deputy CIA deputy director, uh, Robert Cushman, a Marine general, to testify when he should have blocked it through executive privilege. And Cushman opened the whole Pandora's box of how the CIA was helping interfere with the Daniel Ellsberg investigation, trying to smear him. Um, That opened up the whole White House plumbers issue, which was very damaging to Nixon. Right. Um, So he allowed all those things to happen, whereas... If Nixon had kind of had a more of a bulldog in there, would have stopped it from happening. So uh, has Trump gone um, farther than Richard Nixon in terms of asserting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's you know, people should be t- Mueller should be allowed to testify. He doesn't really work for the president. There is no executive privilege. There's no communication between the pre- president and a staffer that existed you know, in the Nixon administration where people were allowed mm-hmm. to testify. So uh, he's definitely stepping over those bounds. Right. Now, one other thing that made the difference, mm-hmm. not to undercut the premise of your book, I'm sure you get into this, is that, um, and I, I saw um, our good friend Carl Hulse from mm-hmm. the Washington Post wrote up, had a piece over the weekend where um, there were Republicans in Congress and in the Senate in the House and in the Senate. Right. He he wrote an article about Bill Cohen, former who then became Bill Clinton's defense secretary. Right. 
who at the time, as Republicans, were willing to stand up and say, our president, our fellow Republican, has gone too far. Right. Like, that made a big difference, right? Big difference. And, I mean, you where, did, where are those voices today? Well, they're not speaking out publicly. Um, part what? of it is gerrymandering, where you have people in such safe seats that they fear nothing. I mean, Cohen at the time was only in his second term in Congress. Or he might have even been a freshman. I think he got elected in 72. So when the impeachment hearings were happening in 74, you know, he didn't know if he was going to get reelected. He says he figured by speaking out meant that he would not be reelected. Maybe so. Um, he just had a more marginal seat. So yeah. you had to come out and say, look, this doesn't fly with me. You know who else came out and did that? Larry Hogan, the father yes. of the current governor of Maryland. Good point. Who, yes. Who probably did not have to say. I mean, there's a real profile in courage. He was running for governor of Maryland, you know, for the Republican nomination. And he was, a, I think, congressman mm -hmm. from PG County yep. Yep. and said, I'm going to vote for impeachment. And it sunk him in the primary. Right. Ended his political career, basically. He lost uh, the primary right. for governor of Maryland because he voted to impeach yeah. the president. Right. Well, he probably and, would have lost the general if he had been nominated, but, but still. Uh, and then in the Senate, there were voices, including Barry Goldwater, right, who went down to tell Nixon privately. It's over. It's over. Well, that was after the release of the so-called smoking gun tape in which Nixon and Bob Haldeman, his previous chief of staff, were talking about using the CIA to block the FBI's investigation of the Watergate break-in. Now, this is something that I say in the book. Haig knew about for 15 months. Haig, on May 11, 1973, later, just an hour after Nixon had told him for the second time that there was a White House taping system, was sitting in a meeting with Nixon and Haldeman, who had come back after he had left office, in which they talked about the so-called smoking gun tape. And Haldeman says to Nixon, you told us to call the CIA to bring them in. So at that moment, Haig knows something had happened. And he had known just an hour earlier that there were tapes that would prove it. Hmm. And so he knew for 15 months that there had been obstruction of justice and said nothing about it. And later on during his tenure... You know, he was reminded, if you knew about a obstruction of justice, that's the same as being mm -hmm. involved in obstruction. So he had a problem. He had been sitting on that for a long time. He knew that that had happened. And when they lost the Supreme Court case about the tapes, he knew that that tape was going to come out. And he went to Barry Goldwater and, and said, look, you know, this is bad. And Goldwater's like, I'm not going to risk my career for you. And he was up for re-election that year. So he said to Nixon, I'm not going to vote to acquit you in the Senate if it comes down to it. And that's when Nixon knew he was sunk. There's another earlier example with Goldwater. is at a dinner with Nixon at the White House where it says, quit acting like this and be a president. Um, people who were around Nixon at that time were alarmed by the condition he was in. He was drinking more than he normally did. I mean, he had a notoriously low threshold for alcohol. So when he f was affected by it, it was obvious. And Goldwater was one of those people who said, this is not working for me. Right. Uh, remind me, so um, what? How, how did it end for Al Haig? Well, Al Haig... Uh, did he go out as a hero or uh, just his career destroyed by being so close to Nixon? He left office and became uh, supreme... Allied commander in Europe, so he was a chief NATO commander. 
a job that he after the White House after the White House a job that he was able to get only because it did not require Senate confirmation. <laughs> he wanted to be Army Chief of Staff because he had been Vice Chief of Staff before he went back to the White House. But they were like, you can't make it through a Senate confirmation hearing. So they gave him this job. He left. He was in private industry, came back as Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, first Secretary of State. And then- I totally forgot that. Yeah. yeah. Left in mid-1982 after he- threatened to resign for the umpteenth time, and Reagan said, oh, I accept your resignation. It was gone. Ran for president in 1988 in a brief flurry of activity and Mm -hmm. died in 2010. So when you look at what's happening today, um, where, uh, I mean, do you you believe, as some people say, that uh, we are on the brink of or maybe already in the middle of a constitutional crisis? Yeah, we're getting there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of hyperbole involved in everything um, coming from the White wa- House. Welcome yeah. to Washington. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah, but uh, I mean, for Donald Trump, it's a coup, right? Uh, coup. Yeah, not Haig's coup, but Don's <laughs> coup or whatever. Yeah, uh, and um, and then you know, for some Democrats, it's a constitutional crisis mm-hmm. which demands impeachment, right? Right. Or, you know, impeachment is an option. It became an option for Nixon because there were so many other things that had happened. And finally, people said, look, this high crimes and misdemeanors, this qualifies. And, you know, two articles of impeachment p- passed against Nixon. Uh, so back, back, back to the, um, you know, Kamala Harris yesterday said she thinks we're there. Um, Jerry Nadler yesterday says it is a constitutional crisis. I mean, but clearly, Donald Trump has decided that his way forward is to refuse to cooperate with this Congress in any way whatsoever in terms of releasing documents, allowing people to testify, right. giving him the time of day, whatever. Yeah. Now, and- so where does this lead? Given what we saw that happen with Nixon, which ended up with impeachment and resignation, how does this resolve itself, do you believe? Well, with Nixon went to the Supreme <clears throat> Court, the fight over access to the White House tapes, and the Supreme Court said, you need to give up the tapes. And once that happened, Nixon was finished. Right. And, you know, what Haig said... Er- How long did that take, by the way? Well, we first learned about the existence of the White House tapes in July of 1973. And immediately, members of Congress and the, White- the Watergate special prosecutor wanted access to the tapes. And Nixon fought him all the way to the end. He gave up some in October of 73 after the Saturday Night Massacre because that was really a a tape confrontation. Mm -hmm. Um, But he held on to a bunch because there were some that he just couldn't afford to give up, including the June 23rd, 1972 smoking gun tape about obstruction. Right. But once the court ruled unanimously, and the court ruled in seventy three, so late 70, July seventy four, seventy four, right, yeah. right around the time of the impeachment <laughs> vote, that moved pretty fast. Yeah, and then once he had to give up the tapes, and it was obvious what was in them, he had to go. Right. His support evaporated. Right, so that this could get in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, an, an issue with this with, that has this kind of weight, right? And, Absolutely. Get and there pretty fast. I think Trump feels good about the alignment of this Supreme Court. I mean, he's picked two of the justices. He's won in other contentious cases, like with the travel ban. So he probably feels like he's got a shot. And other people say 
you know, are these people going to sully their careers by backing him if they don't have to, if the law doesn't support him? In some ways, the laws, you know, do support Trump. They may not be popular, but they say you have the authority to do this. Um, uh, yeah, and that's that's the test, right? I, I guess of the real test. Yeah, of, are there limits to presidential power? Yes, but when and where and how? Right? I think the ultimate limit on his presidential power is November of next year, and you know all this other stuff about how. You know, can he be impeached? Can he be prosecuted? You know, I think it's almost a waste of breath unless he basically did do what he said he could do and get away with it, which is kill somebody on the streets of New York. <laughs> um, you know, I think he can go into a clinch with, you know, the other side and hold them up until it comes to election time. Right. So do you believe that we will see, um, uh, in the meantime, Robert Mueller testify in front of the House? Oh, I think he'll testify eventually. I don't see how the president can block him from testifying, um, unlike, you know, some other people. I mean, Mueller didn't have any secret meetings with Trump, didn't have any contact with them all. So, you know, there's no executive privilege that would seem to spring out of that. Uh, and, And I don't. Like you, I don't see any way that Bob Barr could block Bill Barr. Sorry, mm-hmm. could block him. Uh, at the same time, Barr has twice said, "I've got no problem with Mueller testifying." Right. Well, what difference does it make? I mean, it, we've all read the Mueller report. It's pretty damning. Yeah. Um, you know, the president well, says I've been cleared, but then criticizes the report for saying what it does, which doesn't make any sense. But it. I would hate to have somebody write something like that about me. Right. But you know, I, I, I think, the, I, uh, yeah. I was saying, on, on that note, everybody's read the Mueller report. I, I kind of agree with that. But I think that if you look at sort of how this was presented, right, in a way that like the vast majority of the American people are not going to actually sit down and read the Mueller report, they learned what they wanted to know. From Bill Barr saying there was no collusion, there was no obstruction. From Donald Trump constantly saying there's no collusion, there's no obstruction. I've broken no laws, I've not, nothing like that. But if you really dig into the Mueller report, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And true. and I think I don't think was... there are enough people pointing that out on a very right. big scale and a very big for a very big audience that no. Right. Th- so to your point, I think the value of Mueller's testimony would be to hear him say, and for the American people to hear him say, yes, Donald Trump did obstruct justice, and, or tried to, tried in several to. different ways. Right. Uh, in other words, you could just ask, if I were, is, it, is it true what the president says, that you report, your report says no obstruction? And he would just say, no, no that's not it's true. No, it's not true. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think, if you put it, would you, does your report to say that there was no evidence or no attempts at collusion? He would also say, no. You'd say it doesn't amount to a criminal conspiracy, right. but there were certainly lots of meetings and lots of a, a, a inviting or accepting mm-hmm. uh, evidence that they might have on Hillary or something. Right. Lots of those kinds of things. Not a criminal conspiracy. That's different than the way Donald Trump paints it. So yeah. that that I think would have some power. Mm-hmm. Where it leads, I'm not sure. But I don't think it leads mm-hmm. anywhere. I mean, uh, <coughs> you have the report. That's enough if you wanted to launch an impeachment investigation to start one. You know, the parallel with Nixon is there was a report by the second Watergate special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, done with a grand jury, 
Well, they indicted seven Nixon aides on March 1st, 1974, but not the president. But that report from the grand jury went straight to the House Judiciary Committee, and they used that as evidence in their impeachment proceedings. Um, so, you know, that's where these things can lead. Another interesting thing is the whole idea that you can't prosecute a president for a crime came out of the Nixon administration in a 1973 you office, of office of legal counsel? counsel report, September 24th, 1973. Interesting thing about that report is it says you can't prosecute a president, but you can prosecute a vice president. And that was right at the time when really? Nixon and Haig were trying to force out Spiro Agnew. Whoa. And Spiro Agnew was saying, you can't prosecute a vice president. Boom. Here comes this report from the Justice Department that says, oh, yes, you can. And was it useful to help Nixon? Yes, at the time. It set his mind at ease. He knows that Jaworski right. or at yeah. the time it was still Archibald Cox can't prosecute me. But it tells Agnew, you got nowhere to go. We can prosecute you. You either have to get prosecuted or quit. Right. And they wanted him to quit. Haig, especially because to get rid of Nixon, you had to get rid of Agnew. No one was going to impeach Richard Nixon and have, have Agnew end up being president. I mean, far more polarizing figure than Mike Pence. Um, I was gonna say, maybe we're going after the wrong person. We should be. We should be going after Mike Pence. But uh, if the Office of Legal Counsel uh, issued that opinion in 1973, yep, they could change it, couldn't they? I suppose they could, but they'd have to have a good reason. And you're asking the Trump Justice Department to no, write a new no. document that says yeah. it can happen? Forget the, ju the Trump Justice Department, but a Justice Department could. I mean, yeah, this is theoretically. Not, so just to be clear, this is not written in stone. This is not the Constitution. Absolutely. Yeah. Th this right. is a it's, a, it's a, an opinion from bureaucratic right. lawyers. I mean, obviously, who are skilled. Right. But it's not, you know, dogma. Mm -hmm. Um. And the thing is, with, with that whole thing, is that Elliot Richardson, who was then the attorney general, was in a battle, one, to prosecute Agnew, because he and his prosecution team believed he was guilty, which he was, but two, to save Archibald Cox as Watergate special prosecutor. Cox was Richardson's mentor, and he didn't, and they wanted to fire him. So Richardson gives Nixon this thing, says, you can't be prosecuted by this guy, but you can get rid of your vice president. I mean, he had a political reason to do that. Yeah. Now, um, Haig's coup, again, is the name of the book. Ray Locker, the author, uh, How Richard Nixon's Closest Aide Forced Him from Office. Alexander Haig was Richard Nixon's chief of staff. Looking at the Trump White House, is there any, I mean, remember the Michael Wolff book, First right. Ray's, what was the name of that book? Fire and Fury. Fire and Fury, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that there were people inside the Trump White House who were really concerned about this president. He was mm -hmm. incompetent. He was maybe even a little wacky. Right. You know, and they were. Uh, and in fact, the Mueller report says one of the reasons he was not he Trump was not more successful in obstructing justice was because some of his aides refused to carry out his orders. Yeah. Even Corey Lewandowski. Right. Right. Um, and, and and Don McGahn. Uh, so is there anybody in the White House today that you see? who could fill a role like Alexander Haig and end up uh, cooperating to try to get Trump out of there? Not that I know of. I mean, one of the, Doesn't look like it, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, look, 
Any stand-up person, it seems, has been... They're gone. Yeah. And Trump doesn't confide in them. You know, so guys like Mick Mulvaney, the current chief of staff, basically let Trump do what he wants. His kids, Ivanka, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, the reason they're so close to him is because he wants them closer, because he knows he can trust them. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, you know, that last fall in the New York Times by the anonymous insider saying... Yeah, there you go. Who can blame Trump for not trusting these people? They they're bragging right, that right. he can't trust them. Right. Um he doesn't and the crazy thing about that from his point of view is he doesn't know who that person who wrote that op ed is. Right. It could be anybody. Yeah. And you know, Nixon had aides who didn't do what he wanted. I mean, even even his closest people didn't do what he wanted when he would do something. But crazy. you look at that. So Mattis is gone. Yeah. You know, uh, Tillerson. Yeah. Gone. Gary Cohn. Gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, any of those people, McMaster. Right. Gone. Any of those people you think of might have been, as we called them at the time, the grownups in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not. They're, they're out. Right. right. No, you have it down to lower level government officials who may or may not do what he wants. And. There's a limit to what they're willing to take. And you look at Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson. You know, she got that job. She was in it for what, maybe a year and a half? And she's out. You know, took a university president's job somewhere, which you know she had to be negotiating for for a long time. (laughs) She's one of the lucky ones. She gets to keep her reputation. Yeah, Right. right. But there's just a limit to what these people are willing to do. Nixon, by comparison, was... Relatively speaking, a great man. He did a lot of things. He had been, you know, involved in Republican politics for a long time. He had been a two-term vice president. He had done a lot of things that attracted him supporters who believed in what he was doing in his worldview. And so there were far more people in his administration who were going to carry his flame as opposed to Trump's. Right. And you got to say, he actually... Uh, despite all the bad stuff, he did some good things like the EPA and... He was a president of consequence. You know, he made stuff happen. He was not a great person. He did a lot of things that were truly reprehensible, like extend the Vietnam War needlessly um, to use it as a bargaining chip. But, uh, you know, he did make a lot of things happen. Read more about it in Haig's Coup, How Richard Nixon's Closest Aid Forced Him From Office... Uh, by Ray Locker, who stays with us here as a friend of Bill. And we'll be joined by uh, Adam Smith from uh, End Citizens United. Coming up next year on The Bill Press Show, good to have you with us. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, you bet it is. Monday, May 13, The Bill Press Show. Good to be back with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, and a great way to wind up the show, Ray Locker, uh, with us still as a here for the entire hour as a friend of Bill. Uh, we're celebrating a uh, publication of his latest book called Hague's Coup, uh, which is a sequel to this earlier book, Nixon's Gamble. And this is about Alexander Haig, Richard Nixon's uh, closest friend and most powerful aide. Um, you know, it, forced him out of office. If only those lessons learned from Nixon's presidency could be applied to today. You if know? only. If only. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and joining us now at the table, Adam Smith. Uh, our good friend who follows uh, Trump's legal troubles, so we don't have to, but he comes in every once in a while and tells us all about it. Uh, strategic Partnerships Director for End Citizens 
United. Adam, it's good to see you. Hey, good morning. Good to be here. Uh, a little breaking news here, friends and neighbors. Yes, indeed. Do we have uh, our sounder. Da, 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 da. Breaking news. Uh, China says that it will raise tariffs on oh. $60 billion in U.S. goods starting June 1st. This is, of course, in response to the escalation in trade frictions that uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump started. This is from the finance ministry in Beijing. Uh, just a couple days after Donald Trump announced that he was going to be raising tariffs on some Chinese imports, they're still working on this trade fight, uh, but it is not going very well. Uh, speaking of which, um, yesterday, uh, the president's econ- chief, econ- chief economic advisor, uh, Larry Kudlow, was on uh, Fox News Sunday with uh, Chris Wallace, uh, and Chris Wallace played the little clip where Donald Trump, of course, says these tariffs are good for Americans and China is the only one who's ever going to have to suffer. Our country can take in $120 billion a year in tariffs, paid for mostly by China, by the way, not by us. A lot of people try and steer it in a different direction. It's really paid, ultimately, it's paid for by, largely by China. But Larry, that isn't true. It's not China that pays tariffs. It's the American importers, the American companies that pay what in Mm -hmm. effect is a tax increase and oftentimes passes it on to U.S. consumers. Uh, fair enough. In fact, fair enough. <laughs> both sides will pay in these both things. Both sides will and pay. And of course, uh-huh. it depends. Well, if it's a tariff on goods coming into the country, the Chinese aren't paying. Uh, no, but the Chinese will suffer <laughs> GDP losses and so forth um, with respect to a diminishing Maybe. export market and goods that they may need for their own. Uh, I understand that, but economy. the president says China doesn't. That China it pays the tariffs. They may suffer consequences, but it's U.S businesses and U.S. consumers who pay, correct? And yes, to some extent. I, mean, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, yeah, you don't yeah. disagree with that. Yeah, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> That's a total contradiction, Ray, of what the president was saying. Oh, absolutely. And, and the but, truth. Yeah, and it, it, you had to pull hard to get it out of Larry Kudlow, who's basically turned his back on everything he's ever said on CNBC for decades once he took this job. Yeah. Adam, everybody's right. I mean, Larry Kudlow was the archpriest of anti-tariffs. Yeah, just like, I mean, anyone in this administration, their job is to defend what the president says. And he says so many indefensible things that you have to see them, like, twist themselves up like a pretzel to defend him. Yeah. Uh, and so, now, watch. Today he's going to be backtracking, saying, well, what I really meant was da 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 right. da, da but I want to know how much it's going to increase the cost of those hats, right? Those red hats. <laughs> that come from I, China. I think, I think they're all made in China. So we're yeah. going to see an increase in that. Okay. All right. Now, the question of the day, I know we have more serious things to talk about, but the real question of the day is, do you know who Alfred E. Newman is? I do. I actually read Mad Magazine as a kid. I will say that, like, <laughs> I it would have taken me a sec- when he when he said it, it would have taken me a second to just, but I did read Mad Magazine as a kid. Ray, you and I are of a generation that we definitely know who Alfred E. Newman oh, is. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But how many people today, I mean, what percentage, right? Oh, I mean- Pretty small. I, I'm sure my kids don't know who he was. Yeah. Um, I think my generation's probably the. I'm about his uh, Pete Buttigieg's age, yeah. so it's probably we're probably right nor the tail end of it. It was. Yeah. It was when the internet came around, right? Because when I was a kid, I'm 39. Uh, Mad Magazine was it. Yeah. Man. I mean, we mm-hmm. that, that was for for like childhood entertainment, right? Yep. That was what we did, and so like I I got that reference, but I think it 
really there's a steep drop off after right. uh, around my age. For sure. And I thought Buddha Judge had a great response when he was asked uh, about this. And Donald Trump today in an interview um, compared you to the Mad Magazine mascot and said Alfred e. Newman can never be president. What's your response to him? So I'll be honest, I had to Google that. Uh, I guess it's a generational <laughs> thing. I didn't get the reference. Uh, I, it's kind of funny, I guess, but uh, he's also the president of the United States, and I'm surprised he's not spending more time trying to uh, salvage this China deal. Yeah, I mean, usually his nicknames, let's face it, are more cutting and more maybe right to the point. This one he kind of... Yeah, went back into the time machine. (laughs) I mean, it's. I do think it's funny. If you know who Alfred E. Newman is, it's funny. And say what you will about Donald Trump, and there's a lot of bad things to say, he's got a great sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to (laughs) poking fun and ridiculing uh, his political opponents. Um, Well, at least it's not racist. Right, yeah. Some of his yeah, enemies. true, true. You know, yeah, right. you, know, you got to cre- take wins where we get credit. <laughs> uh, speaking about wins, you had a certain win in the courts recently on the emoluments clause. You know, yeah. So there is a uh, congressional. Adam is one of the few people who knew about the emoluments clause before it started again with Donald Trump. Somebody right? has to. Oh, right. Man. <laughs> yeah. So there have been a couple of challenges. This, the emoluments clause constitution basically says. Uh, I call it the foreign bribery clause. Basically, presidents can't accept payments or gifts from foreign uh, foreign governments. Set written by the founders because they knew exactly the problem of foreign influence in our political system. Uh, and so there've been a couple of challenges. Uh, one that's st- that is uh, was moved forward recently was the congressional challenge because the Monuments Clause says Congress must approve these payments. And Congress has obviously not been given the chance to approve, you know, the uh, all the foreign governments and their lobbyists holding events at Trump Hotel or buying Trump properties. And a judge at the end of April said that disagreed with the government's um, definition of emolument, that it's only uh, counts as a uh, payment made uh for the effect of uh, a presidential act, right? Basically saying only quid, direct quid pro quo payments are ones covered by the emoluments clause. And the judge in the case said that is not even close to true. If you mm. look at dictionaries of the time, you had general public understanding. It's it's broader than that. So he said the case can go forward. Um, I think in the next week or so, there's going to be another hearing deciding what to do next. Um, and if that goes forward, you would see more discovery, um, more insight into the Trump administration said it has, has put processes in place to like. Uh, reduce foreign uh, spending at the hotels and like make sure there's no conflicts. But I don't know if anybody actually believes that's true. Um, and it's not told us like it. The government once a year, the Trump organization will say, "Here are the profits we made made from foreign governments," and like write a check to the Treasury Department. But it has never said how they come up with that process, what it means, what do they count as profit, do they count as net, like all that stuff we just are unclear on it. So hopefully this case will continue to go forward, we'll get some more details. Uh, so Ray, not Donald Trump's maybe um, greatest legal problem, but just a, a little pain that doesn't go away right. and is moving forward, right? Well, yeah, I mean, look, those foreign governments are going to that hotel for a reason. That's right. Just like uh, the guy at T-Mobile is buying, getting stuff at that hotel for a reason. You know, and Trump's just the kind of guy who will take their money and not do anything for them. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, right. I mean, 
<laughs> and kind of you the know the same the principle story. happened with the Clinton Foundation. Yeah. Oh. People were giving money to the Clinton Foundation thinking that it might make a difference somewhere somehow. I don't know if they ever sold that to those donors, but I think that's why people do things in politics. So it's only natural to assume that people are doing that with Trump and his properties to influence Trump. And I think they do get some influence, unlike some other people. Yeah, I had uh, I had a conversation last week with uh, Sean Donovan, who was uh, the first HUD secretary for President Clinton and then became director of OMB. And he was telling me he was very, very involved in this because OMB sort of they oversee everything. Right. And they saw this train wreck coming. They knew that on day one of the Trump presidency, there would be a conflict with that hotel. Uh, And so it could have been avoided, right, if the government uh, real estate office, uh, the GSA, GSA had said, no, 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 the terms are pretty clear here. You cannot be president and have this yeah. the lease for this right. hotel. Why did they look the other well, way? And there are some questions about that whole GSA process. And there's a that raises the other question about the moving the FBI building, um, which there was they were right. going to move the FBI building or and uh, and maybe they'd put a hotel up and the <laughs> FBI building is a couple week right. couple blocks away mm-hmm. from Trump's hotel. I mean the thing is Trump's whole thing is be nice to people who are nice to him, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen all of these examples of people like Mar-a-Lago members getting his ear and then him saying, oh, let's do this policy because someone at Mar-a-Lago asked me to. Like we've just seen examples of this stuff happening over and over again. So it's hard to believe that all the like Trump administration officials who are having happy hours all the time at Trump Hotel, hanging out with John Legere from T-Mobile. Right. It's hard to believe that these people aren't talking to these people at these events and not influenced by it. That's the kind of access that any lobbyist would die for. It's not making the specific ask at one of those things. It's getting to know people. Mm -hmm. You're lubricating yourselves in the bar at the Trump Hotel. You know, you have access to these government officials. You know that then when later, when you go into a crowded room, when you really need it, you're the one they're going to recognize. You're going to have the advantage over the people who don't do that. Well, a lot of this, Ray, it comes to... I mean, Donald Trump has been able to get away with things that I think we've all seen in so many areas that no other president could have gotten away with. But when he refused to even follow the advice of the Wall Street Journal and divest himself of his properties, his ownings, you know, he's he's gotten away with it. He's gotten away with it because no one's calling him. Trump International, Sterling, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And and we've seen it. He only goes to his own properties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And every time he goes, it's a big you know, a banner advertisement right. for if you want to be, you know, you, you want to be my friend, right? You'll yep. come here too. And we've yep. seen like in Mar-a-Lago, this is a national security issue, right? Where there was that whole story a couple months ago about the woman who like got in like the spyware or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there are more sophisticated spies that could maybe do more there. And I think that we've just seen this is a national security issue. And we don't know who all the members are at Mar-a-Lago. We don't know. There could be foreign-paying members. There could be lobbyists. There are other people. We just – there's so much we also don't know that it's a problem. I have a friend who's a lobbyist who has a house in Palm Beach and who and who goes to Palm Beach when he knows Trump is going to be down there. Mm-hmm. And – He's either a member of Mar-a-Lago, I'm not sure, or knows enough members that he can get in there easily. Right. 
Uh, and I'm not suggesting he's security risk. He is yeah. not a security yeah. risk at all. But he goes there because he'll hang out at the bar, and maybe one out of five times or one out of three times he's there, he ends up talking to Trump. Yeah, right. Trump just comes through, and he sees him and rec- recognizes him by now, and then mm-hmm. imagine what that's worth yeah. to your clients. One of his staffers is one of his cabinet members. Yeah, absolutely. Right, you know? Here's a security risk at a place like this. You go in there, you, you do a classic honey trap in espionage, you know, parlance. Mm-hmm. You have a good-looking woman who gets to know somebody, bada-bing, bada-boom, something happens. You learn stuff about those people. You know, these guys get warned about that for a reason because it happens. It works. And that's how you find out more stuff from people. And who knows if that's happening? Because yeah. it's a sieve. People are in and out of that place like crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was out last week, and I was one re- regret I had that I was gone when we finally got some Trump tax returns. Not the latest, yeah. But we got what ten years of tax returns. Yeah. yeah. What did we learn from them, Adam? Uh, he's a terrible businessman. Um, is uh, because he he lost like a billion dollars in those ten years. Mm-hmm. he lost one year. He lost more money than all of the American taxpayers combined, <sighs> or something like that. He lost a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and that he's probably uh, doing some thing. He's probably doing some things he shouldn't in those taxes right. as well. Um, and just, I think it shows you why he won't release his other returns. Um, his whole thing is, I'm worth all of this money, which he has even admitted that it's because he feels worth that much money. And we're going to see how much he's actually worth. And those financial disclosure forms that he has filed, they're they ranges. They're not tax returns. Right. And I, it's exactly why he won't release them. You know, I think there are a lot of problems in, in that story that I read. Trump problems, not problems with the story. Yeah. But one thing, you know, years ago, my dad was sitting showing me some taxes about some real estate holdings that he had, like a condominium. And the laws at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm like, what? You could do that? You know, the stuff that used to be legal or yeah. still is legal mm-hmm. to most people who aren't experienced in it is crazy. And you know that he pushes the line on every possible thing. Absolutely right. Yeah. The thing that I thought was even more damaging, and you talk about revelations about him and his taxes, the whole thing with his dad and how they hid tax, you know, taxable income and how he was worth way more than he said he was. And then you add this on top of it. No, there's a reason why we don't see those taxes, because I think they would curl your hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no doubt that there, that there was no way Steve Mnuchin, talk about somebody who would never stand up to Donald Trump, right? There was no way, no matter how many deadlines they gave him, yeah. that Steve Mnuchin, <laughs> Secretary of Treasury, yeah. was ever going to order the IRS to release those taxes. It's a complete no violation of the law. I mean, the law is clear. Uh, the president shall give. I mean, yeah. it says shall provide. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the court fight on this if, you know, Donald if Donald Trump has uh, appointed enough judges and if th- <laughs> where those judges come down on this. Because, right. I mean, it's going to go through the courts. It's going to take a while. And we'll see where that ends up. Right. Um, well, poor Rudy Giuliani uh, had to uh, cancel his trip to Ukraine. Um, <laughs> yeah, that happened. I mean, bonkers, absolutely wild. We we just had an election where he said, never again will we allow a foreign government to influence our elections. And here he is begging for it. President Turner right. is leaving the country publicly saying, hey, foreign government. Influence our elections. Right. Uh, yeah. Ukraine, I want you to get a little uh, investigation going here 
So that could help me in 2020. And he sends Rudy Giuliani over there to do it. Yeah. I, 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 it's it's just like we they just we've learned nothing, uh, or they've learned what they've learned is you have to do it. If they learned, maybe they didn't learn nothing. Maybe they learned you have to have a foreign government uh, influence our elections. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do if you're Ukraine? You're going to do it because you need the United States. Because compared to Russia, which keeps encroaching on their borders, we're the best thing they got going. We're going to give them weapons, and yep. they know that. So, well, we'll throw you a bone about you know Hunter Biden or whatever it is they're looking for. I mean, that's what. You know they they'll do. Also, he doesn't what? have to go there to talk to him. Right. We got lots of ways of communicating. <laughs> with <people these> days. <laughs> yeah, there's a Ukrainian embassy here, right? And I'm sure they're yeah right. Yeah. Um, well, what I found funny about this is that even the Trump administration can sometimes go too far, and yeah, and and they have to pull back. Uh, not not often, but in this case, this was just a bridge too far, right? Yeah, and I think and it also obvious, maybe. if if stuff does come out against the, about the Bidens, it's also people can say, why should we trust this? This is clearly Giuliani's foreign meddling, right? So I think it's also probably gives Democrats a bit of a breather, or not a breather, like a response to if there are any news that comes out later in the campaign. For Trump supporters, it doesn't matter. Well, that's absolutely right. And what they want is chatter that they can keep talking about to say he's a bad guy. His son is sleazy, any of that kind of stuff. So you get to October 2020 and people are making up their minds and there might be just enough yeah, that's to true. help spin a, you know, a key state where people go, uh, you know, because a lot of times, you know, they want to vote for the president, even right. if they don't like him. And they just want one little reason not to like the other guy. And it's amazing how small that reason can be sometimes. So, Adam. Uh, Mueller report is out. It's uh, it's hardly over. There are going to be some hearings. Um, but for a lot of people, they believe that Donald Trump's legal problems are behind him, right? That's not necessarily the case, isn't uh, it? No. No, Aren't, I don't think so. I mean, So what is ongoing that he should be concerned about and that we should know about? So this is a good question. I mean, if you look at the Post reported last week that there are 20 investigations from House – committees that are being stonewalled by the administration. Everything from like Puerto Rico disaster response to getting the unredacted Mueller report. So I think that But I'm talking um, about court challenges. Yeah, of course I think the I think that we'll see how much of this goes into the courts. I mean oh, there's the tax true. returns thing. Right. There is um if they hold uh if the House holds bar in contempt. I mean I think part of the um the holder contempt thing just was settled like last month or something, right? And so I think there's just going to be this long... They're going to challenge everything. Every decision, they're going to challenge it and go to the courts, and it's just going to um, take years to get any of this done. But I'm referring back to Southern District of New York. Yeah. Right? This stuff is still going on, isn't it? Or is it... I think they're... Pro yeah, I think they're investigations, both we... that are ongoing that we know about, things that we don't know about. I, I think that stuff stemming from the Mueller report that that uh, Mueller sent off to those district offices absolutely should hear uh, more about. Um, I don't know exactly what those are, but I just I just think... But, right, some, you know, Michael Cohen may be in prison, but yeah. some of the stuff he talked about, yeah. which SDNY was mm -hmm. investigating, have not been resolved yet. You got right? all the records the from Trump's 
personal lawyer and corporate lawyer for at yeah. least 10 years. I mean, that is a chronic infection that may not flare into something that's going to kill you right now. But over time, it weakens him. It you know, it's a distraction. And, you know, there's stuff in there that's probably prosecutable. Um, if not now, but January 2021, if he doesn't get reelected. Um, and the statute sure. hasn't run on those things. Yeah, it's a problem. And some of what Cohen was talking about, where the, I mean, it, it, the focus seemed to be on his financial, yeah. the business dealings, Trump empire, right? right? Not so much the political stuff. I yeah. mean, I think most people who are familiar Bank with his business and, record know that it is just riddled with fraud. The whole Deutsche Bank thing, yep. that's bank fraud. Yeah. Okay, you lied to get money. You do that if you're a normal person and you're in trouble. Yeah. And uh, just from the appearances of those stories, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and that's why the Trump Organization has sued Deutsche Bank to prevent oh, right. them from yeah. disclosing those documents right. to, to the uh, congressional committees. Yeah. Now, I thought Michael Cohen, when he summed it up and he said when he was getting a loan, he lied about how much money he was he, he had. Right. When he was paying his taxes, he lied about how much money he didn't have. Yeah. Right? So, oh, <laughs> totally. There it is. Hey, gentlemen, great hour. Thanks you so Thank much. You. Thanks hey, Adams, great to see you. From uh, N Citizens United and, of course, Ray Locker. And here it is, the new book. Go out and get it now wherever you buy books. Hague's Coup. Uh, and that's the rest of the day is yours, folks. Have a great Monday. Come back and see us tomorrow. This we'll be looking is for the you. Bill Press Show.